Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon. It publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar Planetary Observers, otherwise known as Australian Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, for $35 a month, you receive a year's free membership in the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Observer's Notebook. You can also join the ALPO for as little as 18 bucks a year. For more information, go to the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy up there on top in the search field. And also the podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the podcast. And now, the Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Today we have a special guest, uh, Chuck Wood, astronomer and author and I consider a moon expert. Welcome to the podcast, Chuck. Hi, thank you, Tim. Now, why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself before we get into it? Okay. Um, I Sometimes I say I started being interested in the moon and the science of the stars and planets when I saw an eclipse of the moon in, in uh, the fifth grade, when I was in the fifth grade. But the, there's a lot of territory between the fifth grade and now, so let me just say I've really been fortunate to um, to work at the Lunar and Planetary Lab in Tucson when Gerard Kuiper was the director, and to to um, have various times been involved with people at the USGS and Brown University and University of Arizona. So I've I've been really fortunate to be uh, able to interact with all the leading lunar scientists of the last 50 or 60 years. Um, you would think some of it would have rubbed off on me, and I guess a little has, but I wish more had. <laughs> That's good. Now, are you uh, chairman of the Lunar Task Group right now? There's a uh, International Astronomical Union uh, Lunar and Planetary Nomenclature Group, and the, the we have... Uh, uh, sections for each of the planets and the outer solar system satellites and asteroids and comets and i'm i'm the head of the lunar nomenclature task group which has members in um in uh, the united states and england germany uh russia china um i think that's about it so you're basically responsible for naming 
lunar features. Right. Uh, our, our group gets the request uh, from scientists and others who want uh, features to be named on the moon. And a, we a good evaluate. It could be Tim Robertson. Yeah, that would be a good feature name on the moon. I'm just. Well, I'll, I'll uh, tell you <laughs> that we only name uh, craters after people have been dead three years. Oh, well. Oh. So I guess probably not in a hurry. No, I'm not in a hurry for that. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, what. Is there a person or event that really sparked your interest in astronomy? I know you mentioned the lunar eclipse, but is there something else? Well, I think that the eclipse was uh, really what got me started. And I, I was reading a lot of science fiction then. You know, in the fifth grade, I was, I was uh, uh, 12 years old or 13 years old, whatever it is. And I uh, read a lot of science fiction and started reading uh, books about the moon. Uh, one of the early books I read was Patrick Moore's book about the moon that w I think he published in 1952. So I, I was one of the folks who got turned on to the, the moon and, and the planets by uh, Moore's early work or his work. And uh, I, I got a chance to meet him once. Uh, I've argued with him before on, on things we disagreed with, but uh, he was a wonderful popularizer who, who got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people interested in, in planetary science. Now, where were you raised? Um, well, I, I, I was either in a family that was under uh, watch by the police or a military brat or something, because we moved around a lot. I, uh, I, I went to high school in Southern California in, in the La Puente area, uh, down south of Los Angeles. Okay. And, uh, that was that was uh, where I built a small telescope with some friends, and uh, each each of us built a small telescope. Uh, three of us became PhDs in astronomy. Uh, another one became a PhD in psychology, probably sh showing the help we all needed. <laughs> what, 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 what was that telescope you built? I built a five-inch plate glass Newtonian, and uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the. Texero. Texero was the author of the book, uh, a book that was written in French and translated to English in the 50s, or I guess. Uh, and he wrote a book about building square-tubed telescopes. Uh, and I followed his directions. I, I built a beautiful square tube and used pipe fittings for the mount. And uh, when I dragged it out of the car and brought it into the high school uh, gym for the science fair, my teacher gave me an A on the spot before he looked through the telescope, just for the fact that uh, I'd done the carpentry and the plumbing to put it all together. Very good. Was that your first telescope? No, I bought an Edmunds 3-inch uh, Newtonian uh, a couple of years earlier. And uh, again, Edmunds uh, was a, a classic company in the 50s and 60s, getting lots of uh, people started in astronomy. Right, I remember looking through their catalog, like the J.C. Penney's and Sears yep. Christmas catalog. <laughs> I was that, yeah. that was the catalog I looked at. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a dream telescope that you'd like? I I have had a, a really exquisite telescope, a a um, Soviet, I guess Russian era, not Soviet era. Um, oh gosh, I forgot the name of it. Uh, telescope that uh, was a uh, Newtonian uh, Maxitov, uh, six-inch aperture, and it was the absolutely best optically performing telescope I've ever looked through. I've looked through astrophysics refractors. This was better. It, really? It's, uh, 
it's a, it's just a magnificent telescope. And um, the problem with it was it had a lousy mount, a lousy focus, and it seemed to have been built out of X-tank parts, so it was really heavy. But optically, it's, it was just superb. Hmm. Sub-kilometer sub resolution on the moon when the seeing would support that. Wow. What's your current telescope? Uh, I have seven of them, I'm ashamed oh, to say. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't be ashamed. <laughs> well, my, my wife would say I should be. Uh, the, the one I use most, actually, is, is a, a little five-inch um, Vixen Sharp Focus uh, Reflector. It's a cheap telescope, about 250 bucks, and uh, you put it on the Vixen mount, which is an altazimuth that very smoothly moves in any direction. And the reason I like this telescope, it's not optically superb, it's optically good enough. Uh, the mount works well for what it is, uh, is it's very light. I can pick it up with one hand and carry it outside. It cools down quickly. So I can take a quick look at the moon or Mars just to see what the phases are, what's happening. Uh, and if I, if I want to have a more detailed look, I've got a six-inch Celestron Evolution and an eight-inch, uh, another Soviet, another Russian telescope um, that, I, that I hardly ever use because it's too heavy for me to, to mount on the tripod and carry the whole thing outside. Uh, so I'm, I'm old enough now that the, the best telescope is the one that I can most easily pick up and carry and use rather than the one that's optically or mechanically most superb. I'm finding the same thing. Yeah, it's a, a downsizing telescope is not a big deal for me anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, if yeah. I can carry it outside, that's the best one. That's right. Yeah. Now, you're, you're a moon guy. Do you yeah. have a particular object on the moon or a feature on the moon that is your go-to? Every time you set up a telescope, you I, I, I don't really. No? Uh, the main thing I do is I, I look to see where the Terminator is, and then I, I scroll up and down the Terminator, seeing what, what's well positioned. And it's, it's just amazing. I've been looking at the moon for more than 50 years, and uh, 60 years just about, and I've, uh, I never fail to see something in a new light, to, to see something that I hadn't seen in that particular lighting or uh, um, vibration. So that uh, I'm always pleased to find something new, even if I may have seen it in the past. It seems new to me today. I, I really like to hear that because the moon is out almost every night, yeah, and, and a lot of astronomers base their amateur astronomers base their observing around when the moon's not up, <laughs> you know. But to have someone, I, I'm the same way. I, I go out and I, I scan the Terminator of the moon. I, you know, it's it's. I have a particular object I always look for because I made many observations of it in the ALPO training program years ago, but it's... What's that object? Uh, Eratosthenes. Yep. Great little crater. It's got everything going for it, you know, easy to yeah. find. Yeah, it's one I, yeah. I, no matter, if, it, if it's visible, that's where I point my telescope first. It's kind of funny. I don't know. Yeah. A little thing about it. And I bet, as you said a moment ago, that every time you look at it, it looks slightly different. Yep. That's exactly... In a different place. Uh, you can see... Uh, more features on the interior, on the on the radial distribution of ejecta around it. I mean, there's there's always something to catch uh, and say, oh wow, that's it's neat to see. That's true. Now changing subjects a little bit, you started the lunar photo of the day, the the, the, the LPOD. Right. Yep. How long ago did you start that? Um, it was either two. I think it was two thousand one. 
And uh, it went for 11 years, uh, pretty much every day, a new photograph and new couple hundred word description of it. And uh, I loved doing it. Even the even the nights when I was couldn't think of a word to say about a picture I'd seen a thousand times, an area I'd seen a thousand times, because as as I was saying about visual observing, people would send me pictures of of things that were just wonderful views I hadn't seen them before. Uh, I think I really helped encourage a rebirth in interest in the moon because people knew they could they could get published on LPod uh, if they had a great image. And, and what I found is almost no matter what image somebody sent, I could find something interesting in it to point out. Uh, and, and so that was fun for me, but it did get tiring. And I stopped uh, about four years ago, and uh, I've, I'm recycling them now. So on a day-by-day -day basis, uh, all the early L-pods are, are coming up and, and being visible. And uh, so people can people who have never seen them before uh, have fresh images of the moon and, and descriptions of what's there. Uh, people who have seen them before, haven't seen them for 11 years, because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm day by day from starting at day one. Uh, so it still has some, some people viewing it. I'm happy to, to know that. Yeah, well, I have a confession to make. It's been my homepage on my computer for many, many years. So. Well, I'm glad to, glad to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's very good and well-written as, as well. Now, I'll, I'll, how 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 did you get interested in the moon? Well, as I said, the, the eclipse of the moon, and when I, when I was growing up in high in high school in the nineteen fifties, the space race was just getting started. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when NASA was formed in nineteen fifty eight. I remember seeing Sputnik when it was launched. Uh, so I saw Sputnik. A neighbor had a telescope, and I saw the nineteen fifty six apparition of of Mars. And I, you know, having never observed before, I didn't have trained eyes, but I could clearly see a polar cap, and that was neat. And then uh, when I got my little three-inch uh, Edmonds telescope when I was uh, about a sophomore in high school, uh, my gosh, there's the whole universe you can begin to explore from your backyard. And, and back then, even in Southern California, backyards were pretty dark. That's true. That was, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now you're an author. Yes. Uh, you wrote. Uh, ex well, you wrote. You wrote a, a article in Sky Telescope exploring the moon. Are you still doing that? Yes, I am. I just uh, sent in my. I think it's the February issue article. Okay. And how how long have you been doing that? That's either nineteen or twenty years. I'm wow. not sure. Wow. Is it hard yeah, to no. come up with new material for that, or? That is the hardest part of it. Once once I think about what I want to discuss, uh, then then usually I have to pare back on all the information, all the ideas I have to, to see what we can fit into two pages. But um, sometimes I say to myself, you know, if you've been publishing monthly articles for 20 years, and if I published uh, 11 years every day of Lunar Photo of the Day, and I've written three books about the moon or whatever the number is, it is truly amazing, even to me, that I can often find something new to say about a feature on the moon or uh, types of features on the moon. One of, one of the things I've enjoyed doing is when Lunar Photo of the Day was active, every April 1st, I'd do an April Fool's issue. Uh, and, and one of the ones I really liked was uh, uh, saying, gosh, what was it? I can't remember quite what it was, but somehow there was a mirror in orbit on the far side of the moon, orbiting the moon, and I, 
somebody was able to take a photograph of that mirror uh, from the Earth and show the back side of the moon, the far side of the moon. And what I used was a picture of Saturn's moon Titan, uh, is, is what the back side of the far side of the moon looked like. And since I was on the NASA Cassini project for 29 years, which sent a spacecraft to Saturn and um, flew by Titan a lot, uh, that was that enabled me to combine my my current work on Titan's moon, which has impact craters, and uh, our own moon, which I've loved forever. <laughs> That's pretty good. Now, talk about your work on the Cassini. What was your position? What what did you do? Uh, the way the way you get involved in space spacecraft mission is when NASA decides they're going to have a mission to some target, some planet or asteroid or whatever. They send out an announcement asking people to propose uh, what instrument team they would like to be on and why they're qualified to do it and what particular research you would like to do. So in 1989, I responded to a NASA announcement like that saying that I wanted to be on the Cassini radar mapper instrument team. And the, the reason we sent a radar to Saturn was the Titan, this huge satellite. If it, if it weren't in orbit around Saturn, it would really be a planet. It's bigger than the planet Mercury. Um, this huge moon Titan was covered in a very thick atmosphere of, of methane. And so we never have seen the surface of it until the radar got there and, and we were able to penetrate the clouds. And we during the 20, uh, I guess the mission was 14 years after it got there. Uh, to, we've been able to map about 60% uh, with the high-resolution radar, about one kilometer best-resolution radar. Uh, and there was an optical sensor, a camera that that had capabilities of imaging in the infrared, and that could penetrate through the clouds to a certain degree. Uh, so we got their imagery of the whole surface of Titan, plus our high-resolution of about 60%. So we discovered a new world. We described the new world. And, and Titan is an amazing place. It's, it's like the Earth in that it has a hydrologic cycle. On the Earth, water is, is the material that, that uh, can be liquid. It can, it can rain out of clouds onto the ground, flow through rivers, flow into the oceans and seas. Uh, it can be a gas in the atmosphere, and it can be solid uh, in the glaciers that we have. And on Titan, we have the same three things. We have uh, clouds, and from those clouds, the rain falls, and, and the water runs down rivers, carves rivers, and, and it goes into lakes, and it goes into seas. And, and the surface of Titan itself is made of frozen water, frozen ice, and, and, and actually water because it's so cold. But the liquid that's the gas and... and, and uh, and liquid in solid is methane. Uh, methane is, is uh, hydrogen and, and uh, carbon, um, and uh, it, it forms solid particles that fall out of the sky, sort of like snow. They fall to the surface of the moon and at, uh, to the surface of Titan, and they, they are particles that get swept up by the wind, and they make dunes. So Titan is a world with, with sand dunes, in its equatorial region, but the, they're not made of silicate sands like they are on Earth, but methane uh, particle sands. I didn't know that. So Titan is just an amazing world. It's got volcanoes, not very many. Interesting question why. It's got uh, a few 
impact craters. I counted about 60 early on, and there's probably another 20 of them known. So not very many impact craters, and that's like the Mari on the moon. If there's not very many impact craters, that's a younger surface because projectiles are continuing to fall through time making impact craters. So Titan's overall average surface age uh, is is uh, about a half a billion years. The Earth's surface age is about three and a half billion. You know, the, the Earth itself was formed four and a half billion years ago, but there's so much plate tectonics and recycling and geologic activity that the average age of the Earth is, is actually, I, I misspoke when I said three and a half billion, that's about the age of the oldest rock surface area. The average age of the Earth is like Titan, it's a half a billion years. Venus is also the average age, if you look at, calculate the age of all the different units, is about a half a billion years. So three worlds in our solar system are pretty young. Huh. That's interesting. So you were on that program for quite a while. Yeah, uh, I wrote my proposal in 1989. I worked at NASA, Johnson Space Center at the time. Okay. Uh, a year later, I was accepted. I worked at the University of North Dakota then. And by the time the spacecraft got built and launched, uh, uh, and then finally got to Titan in 2007, uh, I was working here in West Virginia. Uh, some of our team members died during the 29 years of the mission. Uh, some of them sort of disappeared. Uh, they, they just stopped coming to meetings. I, I don't know if their funding stopped or what. And, and Titan, Cassini spacecraft entered Titan's atmosphere last year. And so the mission came to an end in terms of gathering new data. But there, there was uh, one more year, which we're just finishing up, of analyzing all the data. So at uh, 29 years, I've been on one mission. That's, that's quite remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 work for, I work for Goddard, and I'm on the front end of the missions on the uh, design, build, and test, and launch. And once uh -huh. it's launched, I'm, I'm done with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Make your baby and kiss it goodbye. That's it, and yeah, hope everything will give it to the world. It, it better right. work. Yeah. Now, one of your books, uh, The Modern Moon, A Personal Perspective, uh, mm -hmm. talk about that. Uh, that was the, the first one. Actually, that was the second book I wrote. The first book I wrote was about volcanoes of North America, uh, sort of a field guide to about 300 volcanoes in, in the United States and Canada. And uh, I got interested in volcanoes because if we wanted to study features on the moon or on Mars, we knew there were a lot of volcanoes there as well as impact craters. So I went around and visited impact craters on the Earth and volcanoes on the Earth and ended up writing a bunch of scientific publications about volcanoes. And uh, so I wrote a book about the ones in the United States and Canada. And, uh, and then I thought, well, the reason I did that was because I was interested in the moon. And uh, the the Moon book came out 2001, something like that, quite a while ago. Uh, and I thought, well, there's no modern Moon book that has a scientific perspective. Most of the recently published Moon books then and, and now were books published by amateurs, and, and they often were 20 to 50 years behind in the scientific understanding that we had of the Moon. So I thought I would take my scientific experience, I've published a lot of papers about the moon, written articles about the moon. I'd, I'd try to present a modern understanding of the, the moon uh, so that amateurs and other, other folks who might be interested could understand what we know now. 
And that's that's what I do in my Sky and Telescopes articles and what I did in Lunar Photo of the Day. I, I try to I try to explain the moon not the way some some people have done by describing every feature. This crater is to the northeast of that one and it's bigger or smaller. That's that's helps you identify things, but it's missing all the excitement of the scientific understanding about how craters form, why this one how they form, why this one is different from another one, uh, why, how, when did the lavas form? Are the lavas all the same age? Can you tell by observing at your telescope that some are different compositions than the other? Uh, so that's that's what I've enjoyed doing, and the, and I get to go out and use my little telescopes, my backyard telescopes, to sort of make sure what I'm saying is really observable. That's interesting. And the other book I have here. In fact, I have it on my desk, the 21st Century Atlas of the Moon. That's, I, I have to, uh, I run the training program in the ALPO, and part of the training program is the students uh, select a lunar feature, and they make drawings of it over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, occasionally they'll pick a feature I'm not familiar with at all. So yep. your atlas has been a great help to me to, oh, okay, this is where it's at. Now I can confirm what they're looking at and things. So. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it is useful. I I had published by that time, I think, four or five books, and I had been disappointed with pretty much all of the publishers. The, the, the first moon book, The Modern Moon, that Sky Publishing did, I was really pleased with their layout and design and working with them. Um, but in general, publishers don't market books very well. You know, they publish them, and then I hope people will buy them. And then some of the other publishers, uh, the, I did one on the... Uh, the uh, what was the Japanese space probe to the moon? Haiku, uh, boy, it's a good thing we're having this interview now. If we wait another 10 years, I might not remember anything. <laughs> uh, Kaguya, the Kaguya Atlas of the Moon. I They called me when their spacecraft was in orbit around the moon saying that they were using my Lunar 100 list to pick targets to take images of for the front side. But, um, but I didn't make a Lunar 100 list for the far side. So I made up a list of 50 features on the far side that I thought were interesting and worthy of them photographing, trying to find out more about. And because of that, uh, the lead, the lead uh, person on, on the camera system uh, asked me to co-author a book with him on the Kaguya photographs of, of the moon. And those, those, as you may remember, were beautiful oblique images mostly, not looking straight down like uh, most images are taken. Most spacecraft have images looking straight down, uh, but looking obliquely, and they were just superb images. So um, uh, he and I selected the images for that Kaguya Atlas, and uh, he processed them, made a wonderful job of processing them to bring out the detail, and I would write the, the caption about what they showed. And it was, it was a lot of fun to do, and... Uh, and we did it, but Elsevier, who's a major European publisher, uh, is the one who published it. And, and I could never talk to the, the people who were doing the layout or the people who were doing the editing. That was all done in India, and I'm in the United States. So I would talk to some intermediary, some person in England, and then they would explain to the person in India what I needed changed. And sometimes it would work, and sometimes it wouldn't. So that was frustrating. And and, and I decided what I'm going to do is just the next book I'd publish on my own. I'd lay it out, I'd design it, do all the image processing, write all the text, use my computer to 
you know, put the text in a proper format, publish it, find it, find a printer, get it, get it printed. And then, uh, I, I had about 20 boxes of books arrive in my front door one day. And I had people who subscribed to or not, people who read Lunar Foot of the Day and others send me a, a, a letter saying they wanted to buy a copy of the, the 20, 21st, what's the name of the 21st Century Atlas of the Moon? That's it. Yep. And, and so I had to mail all those books. And after you mail a couple hundred books, you realize why you want to have a publisher do it next time. <laughs> but I did that, and I was really pleased with the way it turned out. I think it's the highest quality printing of any of my books. Uh, the photographs turned out really well. The paper is nice, nice stock. So it was fun to do, but I probably won't do it again. So you self-publish that? Pardon? You self-publish that book? Well, um, the University of uh, West Virginia took it over. Uh, I was interviewed on NPR, the local NPR station, and and was talking about uh, the joys of making it and what it showed, but the, the frustration of, of mailing them out to people. And so as soon as that interview was broadcast on the radio, I got a call, telephone call from the editor of the University of West Virginia Press. And they said they'd like to take over the book and reprint it and, and send it out. So it's still available through them. And most of your books are available through Amazon as well? Oh, yeah. Every, everything's through Amazon. Okay. I will add links in the show notes to your books so people can easily Great. get to them if they want. Great. Great. When, let, let me say something. When I stopped doing Lunar Photo of the Day, suddenly I had about, about two hours a night free because that's about what I would spend every day putting together the, putting together the, the next day's Lunar Photo of the Day. And um, so I, I started exploring some of the other things. I live in the oldest house in town, in the, in the town I live in. It was built in... 1831, not very long ago, but uh, the oldest house in town. And so I had started researching the history and going around and finding about businesses and other houses and how people lived in the 1800s. So I've written two books, two novels, science fiction novels that take place here in Wheeling, West Virginia in the 1850s. And the, the main character is an astronomer who teaches at a college that doesn't exist. It, would, it should have been formed, but it never was. Uh, so he's an astronomer. And so that gives me the opportunity to, to look up what was understood about the moon and the planets and everything, excuse me, everything in the 1850s. Uh, so, for example, I discovered that Harvard College in, in their annual yearbook for about 1852, I think, talked about a new theory that uh, Professor Bond, B-O-N-D, who, who took some of the first photographs of the moon with the Harvard 15-inch telescope, uh, that he had about Saturn's rings. He thought they were liquid. He oh, thought yeah. the, the Saturn were liquid. And he had some arguments for it, and, and now we laugh at it. But uh, So it's been fun for me to track, as I write these different history books, to track what was scientifically known about astronomy in, the, in those times. That's very good. So you have you have two fictions, fiction Pardon? books. You have two science fiction books you've written. Well, I, w I don't know if they're science fiction. They're historical murder yes. myths, really, that that have science as a major category. And the sad thing is, I uh, I sent uh, the first one out to a couple of different book publishers and editors, uh, and nobody was interested. So I said, I don't care. Uh, I'm writing these because I enjoy writing them. So I've never had either of the two published. 
No, the third one that I'm working on now. I, I, I need to publish them. Maybe I'll just self-publish them and make them available on Amazon because I think they're fun to read from the point of view of history and the point of view of, of science. Yeah, a lot of people are getting their work self-published through Amazon. It's, yep. it's an interesting avenue. And my son has done that with a couple of books. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you before we started that I gave a, a, a interview, a talk to a eighth grade class of, of kids up in Pittsburgh uh, the other day using, using Google Hangouts. Right. And I was really impressed at how excited they were to learn about the moon and, and about the planets and, and astronomy in general. And it was all due to one teacher they had, one teacher who personally was interested in that. In fact, I work with that teacher's mother and I give her the extra copies of Sky and Telescope I get. So she takes them back to the classroom and the kids get to see Sky and Telescope every month. That's wonderful. I, I, discovered, I discovered the moon, I discovered Sky and Telescope about that same age. And so I'm really happy that, that those kids are, are getting a chance to see it. And and by talking to me, they got to ask questions that nobody else they knew could answer. You know, and and they were oftentimes when I give public talks, the questions are dumb. They're about aliens and flying saucers and crap. Uh, every one of these questions were good science questions, uh, and I I was really impressed with those students, with their teacher, and and the fact that. Uh, you know, Sky and Telescope and most astronomy magazines have a problem that every year the average age of their readers increases by one year. Yes. Just, astronomy just clubs are the same way. Yeah, There's quite a lot of young people coming into sciences, coming into things we used to call hobbies. Nobody collects stamps anymore, for example. And, and so I was really happy to see these young kids being interested. And I think we just have to find the way to connect to them and in Gosh, what is what could be more astonishing and, and fascinating to learn about than than the moon or the planets or, or other parts of the universe? So I think astronomers, amateurs, and professionals have a real opportunity to help steer kids back into a, a direction that our society needs them to go. Um, I've I've read that if we did not have students who came from India and China to the United States we would not have any students in physics departments in colleges across the country. And the interesting thing is the majority of physics professors today are from India or China or other countries. Americans don't study that. Really? So I had not known that. It's a great way to attract kids in to the important sciences uh, like physics uh, that we need to get, to get people into engineering and, and science and and technical fields that determine our future. Yeah, it, it, it's I, I do as much outreach as I possibly can, and it's I always love when I put Saturn in the telescope or even the Moon, and oh, yeah. some kid first time looks in, and the look on their face when they look back at you, it's it's worth a million dollars. That's right. Never never astonishes people who look through. Right. And what what I do is I tell them that you know you've probably seen better pictures of this object on on your on your iPhone or on your computer screen taken by Hubble or something. But you know what? Those, those, those are pictures. They could be of a brick wall and you see it on your screen and, and you don't have any physical connection to it. But when you put your eye at the eyepiece of a telescope and you look at a distant galaxy, there's a, there's a, a photon that left that galaxy maybe a couple billion years ago. 
And that photon of light has been traveling through space and it ends its existence in the retina of your eyeball. You have made a physical connection to a distant part of the universe. When you look at the moon or Mars, the photons come from the sun and they bounce off their surfaces. So you, you are really not just looking at a picture, you are looking at the reality that's, that's made by energy coming from those places. So I think, I think it's really emotionally a very exciting thing to do to look through a telescope with, with understanding of what's happening. You got me motivated to take my telescope out tonight, okay? <laughs> what phase is the moon tonight? Quick. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. It, it, yeah. Now, now we, uh, part of this podcast, I have 10 questions that I ask everybody, and it's just a series it's similar to, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, uh, Inside the Actor's Studio. No, I haven't. Okay, well, they have a series of questions that they've asked for years, and it's just to get it, you know, Learn a little bit more, maybe not all astronomy-related type questions, okay? Sure. First one, on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? <laughs> I bet everybody who answers says I'm not weird at all. No, um, uh, the, the numbers are usually above 8. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I think I'm pretty normal. I, w I would say 6 or 7 maybe. Okay. All right. Uh, what's the furthest you've traveled for an astronomical event? Um, I went to see an eclipse of the sun in Ethiopia in, I think, 1973. And I went to southern Mexico to see one some other date, don't remember when. And I went to Nashville last year to see the one here. Yeah, Nashville's really not that far, though. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like e traveling to Ethiopia. Yeah. And how was that? How was Ethiopia? Well, it turns out I lived there for two years. I, I was in the Peace Corps in Kenya. And I came back to the United States and, and got my master's degree and then went back to the next country up from Kenya, which is Ethiopia, and spent two years there. And uh, Africa at the, that time in the 60s was in early 70s was really wonderful. There wasn't as much killing going on as there has been since then. And in terms of natural history, you could, you could go out and discover a volcano that had been known, but there would never, ever been a scientific paper published about it. So I, I went there and worked at a geophysical observatory in Ethiopia, and I, I wrote a number of papers, and, and some of the things I observed in Ethiopia I later used when I was trying to understand volcanoes and, and fracturing uh, on Venus and Mars. So I, uh, you know, on a daily basis, for example, when your roof is leaking in 10 places or you've you got some, some disease because of food you ate, it's, it's not the best of times to remember it. But overall, especially from a the temporal distance is really a wonderful thing to do. I, I encourage everybody to go on the Peace Corps to live abroad for a while. That sounds like an interesting part of your life. Um, what What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? I live in a small town, and uh, we really don't have many to choose between. So I drive up to Pittsburgh to go to uh, Indian restaurants. Love Indian food, uh, and there's one up there with a very prosaic name of Taj Mahal. Pittsburgh <laughs> is about 55 miles away, but the food is excellent. Okay, what's your most memorable astronomical event? Hmm. I, I think the first the first paper I published 
based upon things I had observed uh, in, in the backyard. <laughs> and I, I saw that there were some faint rills uh, over beyond Patavius on, towards the limb of the moon. And uh, I couldn't find anybody had ever described them before. And so I, I wrote an article for, um, I think it was called The Moon, one of the newsletters that the, the British Astronomical Association Lunar, Lunar Section had uh, in the 60s. Uh, I, I published a small article there with my drawings of these, these rills. I later found out that some people had described them before, but I had never heard of them or seen them. So that was, that was pretty exciting, first time. Okay. Are there any tools or books that have really helped you on your astronomical journey? Um, Rukel, R-U-K-L, was a, I believe, Czechoslovakian cartographer who, who made a series of lunar atlases. They were all hand-drawn. And uh, I've, I've used his atlases since the first one came out uh, in the 60s. I, I never met him, unfortunately, but uh, he and I exchanged letters in the old days before email, uh, and uh, his, his books were invaluable to me. Okay. If you were stranded on a dark site, deserted island, what telescope would you want with you? Well, if it was a dark site, I think I would take advantage of that and hope it's a, a night when the moon was not in the sky all night. And take some some nice uh, uh, eight inch probably uh, sharp focal teles focal length telescope so I could so I could cruise the Milky Way and and see star fields that I I can never see where I live now the uh, the faintest visual magnitude I can usually see is is two or maybe three uh, that's in the nights when it's not cloudy and raining so uh, I'd, I'd want a, a nice uh, wide field scope to explore the, the Milky Way. I like that answer. That's very good. If you were stranded on a dark, deserted island, what music would you bring? You know, one of the things that's happened to me over the years is I've stopped listening to music. I used to listen all the time uh, when I was studying, when I was observing, whatever. Uh, I've always I've always loved classical music and uh, I I don't listen to music at all, really, but I would I would I would take a Mozart uh, symphony if I was looking at something that was sort of uh, exciting and bouncy or, or maybe something more solemn, uh, one of Beethoven's later symphonies. Okay, classical music, I like that. What advice would you give the 12-year-old you on life? Um, you don't realize it, but you can do anything in the world, and there are so many things you have never even thought about, never... Never, you don't know anybody who's an astronomer. You don't know anybody who's an engineer. You don't know anybody, probably, who, who does heart surgery. So you are so ignorant of all the possibilities in the world of things you can do in your life that you should really go out and, and learn. You should explore. You should go to museums. You should, if there's a, our local library, for example, has a wonderful series of talks about different subjects every Tuesday. Um, so try to find out things you don't know. Try to find out things that people you know don't know. I, I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school. Uh, and, and so the library is where I started reading books and learning so much. Now we all have the Internet, so we can explore almost anything. But as you're exploring, you need to 
be aware that you're surrounded much more than in the days when the only information was in libraries because it cost money to publish books and there were editors and there were people to try to make sure that most books had truthful information in them. Nowadays, you're surrounded by so much information, it's hard to tell if it's, if it's real or if it's fake. Um, and, and so the best thing, I think, is to try to go to a local astronomy club, for example, if you happen to have some interest in astronomy, and, and see what people who've been in the field a little longer might recommend. If you go to Smithsonian, if you go to NASA's web pages, those are all great sources. Most universities have outreach pages, and, and, and amateurs who, like you, I think, based on what I've learned just recently, you know, work hard to share their knowledge. So uh, if you're 12 years old, you, you're just sort of becoming aware that there's an immensity of different exciting things you can do with your life. Uh, and you need, to, you need to sort of begin to learn about them. Otherwise, you, you'll miss them because of your ignorance. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you. Uh, here's a tough one. Cake or pie? <laughs> My wife has a cherry pie in the oven, so I'm biased by that. <laughs> there you go. Cherry pie, huh? Nice. I like it. Um, it, who had the single most influence on you in regard to astronomy? Um, when I when I went to the University of Arizona in 1960, Gerard Kuiper had just moved there from Yerkes Observatory. He he moved there with uh, three or four astronomers and, and and graduate students, and and so I I was hired. I think I was employee number seven of the Lunar and Planetary Lab back in '61, and and so I. I got to know, as, as an undergraduate, I got to know Gerard Kuiper. Uh, he gave me a going away party when I went in the Peace Corps, for example. But I think the people who most uh, helped me understand that you know I could become a scientist were Bill Hartman and Clark Chapman. Uh, they were they were graduate students uh, there, and I was an undergrad. And I could see these guys were writing papers and publishing papers. And I thought, wow, they know so much. I could never do that. But over time, I learned things. And over time, I learned things. And the first paper I published, uh, I don't remember what year, in the early 60s, um, was, was sort of grew out of my, of my studying of the moon, working measuring craters, uh, that I had a job doing there. Uh, and and uh, so I, you know, my first paper I published when I was a junior in high school, in college, I think. Uh, so being around people who were doing things in advance of myself sort of led the way for me. So Bill Hartman, for example, uh, was a great mentor for me. And, and I I've, I've just uh, was out in Arizona for a meeting in Flagstaff about three weeks ago. And, and I went down to Tucson and stayed in Bill's house. And uh, we talked about astronomy and we talked about painting. He's a magnificent space art painter. He would be a great one for you to interview. Um, so I, th I think he's probably the single person. That's very good. Um, wow, this has been fun. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I mentioned to you that I was the first one in my family who graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. When I was in my first year of high school, the, the math teacher was a friendly guy. I have no idea recollection what his name was. And he asked me one day after class, in my freshman year in high school, have you thought about where you're going to college? And I did not know anybody had ever been to college before. And and I had to say, no, I hadn't. But that got me thinking about it. I could go to college. 
and and by the time I went to college in 1960, you know, we'd, the space race had, had progressed from having rockets that failed on the launch pad to the Soviets had, had sent rockets around the moon and, and crashed onto the moon. And the United States was still slow. Uh, but but I, I was fascinated by by the moon race and got involved in it. And, and it was, I think, a large part because that high school math teacher asked me, where are you going to college? So I, I think uh, those of us who are around students really have opportunities we don't even know are important to help influence wh what they decide to do with their life. That's very good. That's very good. Well, how can everybody get a hold of you? Um, uh, I was going to say you could send a letter to Sky and Telescope, but, <laughs> but my email address is Tycho Crater. You know, you ask, what's my favorite lunar feature? Well, when I started to get a, a website, an email, and I, I wanted, like, Chuck Wood. That was taken a million years ago, probably. So I tried to think of some name that I could use that nobody would have. And so I said, Tycho Crater. So I'm at Tycho Crater uh, at Yahoo.com. Okay. And are you on any social media? Um, I, I That you'd like to share? I'm on Facebook. Uh, mostly, what I public, what I comment on there is national politics okay. and and, uh, and the local history of the neighborhood, the town I live in. Those are the two things I do on social media. I started a Twitter account, but I I'm, I have more things to say than you can say in a couple hundred uh, words, couple hundred characters. All right. Well, that sounds good, Chuck. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you very much, Tim. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Great. I'm happy to be here. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, Chuck Wood, for coming on the podcast and talking about the moon and life in general. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, Echo, just about anywhere you can find a podcast, we are there. You can support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon, giving up to 35 bucks a month, where we receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his continued generous support. A link for Patreon as well as a link for the ALPO is in the show notes. If you have questions for me, you can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. Find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy or Observer's Notebook. Until next time, my hope that you always have clear and steady skies. Thank you for listening. <laughs>